Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 35, The Masthead. It was during the more pleasant weather that in due rotation with the other seamen, my first masthead came round. In most American whalemen, the mastheads are manned almost simultaneously with the vessels leaving her port, even though she may have 15,000 miles and more to sail ere reaching her proper cruising ground. And if after a three, four, or five years voyage, she is drawing nigh home with anything empty in her, say, an empty vial even, then her mastheads are kept manned to the last and not till her skysail poles sail in among the spires of the port does she altogether relinquish the hope of capturing one whale more. Now, as the business of standing mastheads, ashore or afloat, is a very ancient and interesting one, let us in some measure expatiate here. I take it that the earliest standards of mastheads were the old Egyptians, because in all my researches I find none prior to them. For though their progenitors, the builders of Babel, must doubtless, by their tower, have intended to rear the loftiest masthead in all Asia or Africa either. Yet, ere the final truck was put to it, as that great stone mast of theirs may be said to have gone by the board, in the dread gale of God's wrath, therefore, we cannot give these Babel builders priority over the Egyptians. And that the Egyptians were a nation of masthead standards is an assertion based upon the general belief among archaeologists that the first pyramids were founded for astronomical purposes, a theory singularly supported by the peculiar stair-like formation of all four sides of those edifices. Whereby, with prodigious long upliftings of their legs, those old astronomers were wont to mount to the apex and sing out for the new stars. Even as the lookouts of a modern ship sing out for a sail or a whale just bearing in sight. In St. Stylites, the famous Christian hermit of old times, who built him a lofty stone pillar in the desert and spent the whole latter portion of his life on its summit, hoisting his food from the ground with a tackle. In him, we have a remarkable instance of a dauntless stander of mastheads, who was not to be driven from his place by fogs or frosts, rain, hail, or sleet, but valiantly facing everything out to the last, literally died at his post. Of modern standards of mastheads, we have but a lifeless set, mere stone, iron, and bronze men, who, though well capable of facing out a stiff gale, are still entirely incompetent to the business of singing out upon discovering any strange sight. There is Napoleon, who, upon the top of the column of Vendome, stands with arms folded, some 150 feet in the air, careless now who rules the deck below, whether Louis-Philippe, Louis Blanc, or Louis the Devil. Great Washington, too, stands high aloft on his towering man-mast in Baltimore, 
and like one of Hercules' pillars, his column marks that point of human grandeur beyond which few mortals will go. Admiral Nelson, also, on a capstan of gunmetal, stands his masthead in Trafalgar Square. And ever, when most obscured by that London smoke, token is yet given that a hidden hero is there. For where there is smoke must be fire. But neither great Washington, nor Napoleon, nor Nelson will answer a single hail from below, however madly invoked to befriend by their counsels the distracted decks upon which they gaze. However it may be surmised that their spirits penetrate through the thick haze of the future and descry what shoals and what rocks must be shunned. It may seem unwarrantable to couple in any respect the masthead standards of the land with those of the sea, but that in truth it is not so, is plainly evinced by an item which Obed Macy, the stole historian of Nantucket, stands accountable. The worthy Obed tells us that in the early times of the whale fishery, air ships were regularly launched in pursuit of the game, the people of that island erected lofty spars along the sea coast, to which the lookouts ascended by means of nailed cleats, something as fowls go upstairs in a hen house. A few years ago, this same plan was adopted by the Bay Whalemen of New Zealand, who, upon descrying the game, gave notice to the ready-manned boats nigh the beach. But this custom has now become obsolete. Turn we then to the one proper masthead, that of a whale ship at sea. The three mastheads are kept manned from sunrise to sunset, the seamen taking their regular turns, as at the helm, and relieving each other every two hours. In the serene weather of the tropics, it is exceedingly pleasant, the masthead, Nay, to a dreamy, meditative man, it is delightful. There you stand, a hundred feet above the silent decks, striding along the deep, as if the masts were gigantic stilts, while beneath you, and between your legs, as it were, swim the hugest monsters of the sea, even as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous Colossus at Old Roads. There you stand, lost in the infinite series of the sea, with nothing ruffled but the waves. The tranced ship indolently rolls, the drowsy trade winds blow, everything resolves you into languor. For the most part, in this tropic wailing life, a sublime uneventfulness invests you. You hear no news, read no gazettes. Extras with startling accounts of commonplaces never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear of no domestic afflictions, bankrupt securities, fall of stocks. Are never troubled with the thought of what you shall have for dinner, for all your meals for three years and more are snugly stowed in casks, and your bill of fare is immutable. In one of those southern whalemen, On a long three or four years' voyage, as often happens, the sum of the various hours you spend at the masthead would amount to several entire months. And it is much to be deplored that the place to which you devote so considerable a portion of the whole term of your natural life should be so sadly destitute of anything approaching to a cozy inhabitiveness. 
or adapted to a breed of comfortable localness of feeling, such as pertains to a bed, a hammock, a hearse, a sentry box, a pulpit, a coach, or any of those small and snug contrivances in which men temporarily isolate themselves. Your most usual point of perch is the head of the tea-gallant mast, where you stand upon two thin parallel sticks, almost peculiar to whalemen, called the tea-gallant cross trees. Here, tossed about by the sea, the beginner feels about as cozy as he would standing on a bull's horns. To be sure, in cold weather, you may carry your house aloft with you in the shape of a whale coat. But properly speaking, the thickest watch coat is no more of a house than the unclad body. For as the soul is glued inside of its fleshy tabernacle and cannot freely move about in it, nor even move out of it without running great risk of perishing, like an ignorant pilgrim crossing the snowy Alps in winter, so a watch coat is not so much of a house as it is a mere envelope or additional skin encasing you. You cannot put a shelf or chest of drawers in your body, and no more can you make a convenient closet of your watch coat. Concerning all this, it is much to be deplored that the mastheads of a southern whale ship are unprovided with these enviable little tents or pulpits called crow's nests in which the lookouts of a Greenland whaler are protected from the inclement weather of the frozen seas. In the fireside narrative of Captain Sleet, entitled A Voyage Among the Icebergs, in quest of the Greenland whale and incidentally for the rediscovery of the lost Icelandic colonies of old Greenland, in this admirable volume, All standards of mastheads are furnished with a charmingly circumstantial account of the then recently invented crow's nest of the glacier, which was the name of Captain Sleet's good craft. He called it the Sleet's crow's nest in honor of himself, he being the original inventor and patentee, and free from all ridiculous false delicacy, and holding that if we call our own children after our own names, we fathers being the original inventors and patentees, so likewise should we dominate after ourselves any other apparatus we may beget. In shape, the sleet's crow's nest is something like a large tierce or pipe. It is open above, however, where it is furnished with a movable side screen to keep to windward of your head in a hard gale. Being fixed on the summit of the mast, you ascend into it through a little trap hatch in the bottom. On the after side, or side next the stern of the ship, is a comfortable seat with a locker underneath for umbrellas, comforters, and coats. In front is a leather rack in which to keep your speaking trumpet, pipe, telescope, and other nautical conveniences. When Captain Sleet in person stood his masthead in this crow's nest of his, he tells us that he always had a rifle with him, also fixed in the rack, together with a powder flask and shot, for the purpose of popping off the stray narwhals or vagrant sea unicorns infesting those waters. For you cannot successfully shoot at them from the deck owing to the resistance of the water, but to shoot down upon them is a very different thing. 
Now, it was plainly a labor of love for Captain Sleet to describe, as he does, all the little detailed conveniences of his crow's nest. But though he so enlarges upon many of these, and though he treats us to a very scientific account of his experiments in this crow's nest, with a small compass he kept there for the purpose of counteracting the errors resulting from what is called the local attraction of all binnacle magnets. An error ascribable to the horizontal vicinity of the iron in the ship's planks and the glacier's case, perhaps to their having been so many broken-down blacksmiths among her crew. I say that though the captain is very discreet and scientific here, yet, for all his learned binnacle deviations, azimuth compass observations, and approximate errors, he knows very well, Captain Sleet, that he was not so much immersed in those profound magnetic meditations as to fail being attracted occasionally towards that well-replenished little case bottle, so nicely tucked in on one side of his crow's nest, within easy reach of his hand. Though, upon the whole, I greatly admire and even love the brave, the honest, and learned captain, yet I take it very ill of him that he should so utterly ignore that case bottle, seeing what a faithful friend and comforter it must have been, while within mittened fingers and hooded head he was studying the mathematics aloft there in that bird's nest within three or four perches of the pole. But if we southern whale fishers are not so snugly housed aloft as Captain Sleet and his Greenland men were, yet that disadvantage is greatly counterbalanced by the widely contrasting serenity of those seductive seas in which we south fishers mostly float. For one, I used to lounge up the rigging very leisurely, resting in the top to have a chat with Queequeg or anyone else off-duty whom I might find there. Then ascending a little way further and throwing a lazy leg over the topsail yard, take a preliminary view of the watery pastures, and so at last mount to my ultimate destination. Let me make a clean breast of it here and frankly admit that I kept but sorry guard. With the problem of the universe revolving in me, how could I, being left completely to myself at such a thought-engendering altitude, how could I but lightly hold my obligations to observe all whale ships' standing orders, keep your weather eye open, and sing out every time? And let me in this place movingly admonish you, Ye shipowners of Nantucket, beware of enlisting in your vigilant fisheries any lad with lean brow and hollow eye, given to unseasonable meditativeness, and who offers to ship with the Phaedon instead of Bowditch in his head. Beware of such a one, I say. Your whales must be seen before they are killed, and this sunken-eyed young platonist will tow you ten wakes round the world and never make you one pint of sperm the richer. Nor are these munitions at all unneeded, for nowadays the whale fishery furnishes an asylum for many romantic, melancholy, and absent-minded young men, disgusted with the carking cares of the earth and seeking sentiment in tar and blubber. Child Harold not unfrequently purchase himself upon the masthead of some luckless disappointed whale ship, 
and in moody phrase ejaculates, Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll. Ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over thee in vain. Very often do the captains of such ships take those absent-minded young philosophers to task, upbraiding them with not feeling sufficient interest in the voyage, half hinting that they are so hopelessly lost to all honorable ambition as that in their secret souls they would rather not see whales than otherwise. But all in vain. Those young Platonists have a notion that their vision is imperfect. They are short-sighted. What use, then, to strain the visual nerve? They have left their opera glasses at home. Why, thou monkey, said a harpooner to one of these lads, we've been cruising now hard upon three years, and thou hast not raised a whale yet. Whales are scarce as hen's teeth whenever thou art up here. Perhaps they were, or perhaps there might have been shoals of them in the far horizon. But lulled into such an opium-like listlessness of vacant, unconscious reverie is this absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of waves with thoughts that at last he loses his identity, takes the mystic ocean at his feet for the visible image of that deep, blue, bottomless soul pervading mankind and nature. And every strange, half-seen, gliding, beautiful thing that eludes him Every dimly discovered uprising fin of some undiscernible form seems to him the embodiment of those elusive thoughts that only people the soul by continually flitting through it. In this enchanted mood, thy spirit ebbs away to whence it came, becomes diffused through time and space, like Cranmer's sprinkled pantheistic ashes, forming at last a part of every shore the round globe over. There is no life in thee now except that rocking life imparted by a gently rolling ship, by her borrowed from the sea, by the sea, from the inscrutable tides of God. But while this sleep, this dream is on ye, move your foot or hand an inch, slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror. Over Descartian vortices you hover, and perhaps, at midday, in the fairest weather, with one half-throttled shriek you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. Chapter 36 the quarter deck. It was not a great while after the affair of the pipe that one morning shortly after breakfast, Ahab, as was his wont, ascended the cabin gangway to the deck. There most sea captains usually walk at that hour, as country gentlemen, after the same meal, take a few turns in the garden. Soon his steady, ivory stride was heard as to and fro he paced his old rounds, upon planks so familiar to his tread that they were all over dented like geological stones with the peculiar mark of his walk. Did you fixedly gaze, too, upon that ribbed and dented brow? There also you would see still stranger footprints, the footprints of his one unsleeping, ever-pacing thought. 
But on the occasion in question, those dents looked deeper, even as his nervous step that morning left a deeper mark. And so full of his thought was Ahab that at every uniform turn that he made, now at the mainmast and now at the binnacle, you could almost see that thought turn in him as he turned and pace in him as he paced. So completely possessing him, indeed, that it all but seemed the inward mold of every outer movement. Do you mark him, Flask? whispered Stubb. The chick that's in him pecks the shell. Twill soon be out. The hours wore on. Ahab now shut up within his cabin, anon pacing the deck with the same intense bigotry of purpose in his aspect. It drew near the close of day. Suddenly he came to a halt by the bulwarks and inserting his bone leg into the auger hole there, and with one hand grasping a shroud, he ordered Starbuck to send everybody aft. Sir, said the mate, astonished at an order seldom or never given on shipboard, except in some extraordinary case. Send everybody aft, repeated Ahab. Mastheads there, come down. When the entire ship's company were assembled, and with curious and not wholly unapprehensive faces, were eyeing him, for he looked not unlike the weather horizon when a storm is coming up. Ahab, after rapidly glancing over the bulwarks and then darting his eyes among the crew, started from his standpoint, and as though not a soul were nigh him, resumed his heavy turns upon the deck. With bent head and a half-slouched hat, he continued to pace, mindful of the wondering whispering among the men, till Stubb cautiously whispered to Flask that Ahab must have summoned them there for the purpose of witnessing a pedestrian feat. But this did not last long. Vehemently pausing, he cried, What do ye do when ye see a whale, men? Sing for him, was the impulsive rejoinder from a score of clubbed voices. Good, cried Ahab, with wild approval in his tones, observing the hearty animation into which his unexpected question had so magnetically thrown them. And what do ye next, men? Lower away and after him! And what tune is it ye pull to, men? A dead whale or a stove boat! More and more strangely and fiercely glad and approving grew the countenance of the old man at every shout while the mariners began to gaze curiously at each other, as if marveling how it was that they themselves became so excited at such seemingly purposeless questions. But they were all eagerness again, as Ahab, now half revolving in his pivot hole, with one hand reaching high up a shroud and tightly, almost convulsively grasping it, addressed them thus. All ye mastheaders have before now heard me give orders about a white whale. Look ye, d'ye see this Spanish ounce of gold? Holding up a broad, bright coin to the sun. It is a $16 piece, men. D'ye see it? Mr. Starbuck, hand me yon top maul. While the mate was getting the hammer, Ahab, without speaking, was slowly rubbing the gold piece against the skirts of his jacket as if to heighten its luster, and without using any words was meanwhile lowly humming to himself, 
producing a sound so strangely muffled and inarticulate that it seemed the mechanical humming of the wheels of his vitality in him. Receiving the top maul from Starbuck, he advanced towards the main mast with the hammer uplifted in one hand, exhibiting the gold with the other, and with a high raised voice exclaiming, Whosoever of ye raises me a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, Whosoever of ye raises me that white-headed whale with three holes punctured in his starboard fluke, look ye, whosoever of ye raises me that same white whale, he shall have this gold ounce, my boys. Huzzah! Huzzah! cried the seamen, as with swinging tarpaulins they hailed the act of nailing the gold to the mast. It's a white whale, I say, resumed Ahab, as he threw down the top maul. A white whale. Skin your eyes for him, men. Look sharp for white water. If you see but a bubble, sing out. All this while Tashtego, Dagu, and Queequeg had looked on with even more intense interest and surprise than the rest. And at the mention of the wrinkled brow and crooked jaw, they had started as if they were separately touched by some specific recollection. Captain Ahab, said Tashtego, that white whale must be the same that some call Moby Dick. Moby Dick, shouted Ahab. Do ye know the white whale then, Tash? Does he fan a little curious, sir, before he goes down, said the gay header deliberately. And has he a curious spout, too, said Dago. Very brushy, even for a permacetti, and mighty quick, Captain Ahab. And he have one, two, three, oh, Good many iron in him hide, too, Captain, cried Queequeg disjointedly, all twisky tea betwixt, like him, like him, faltering hard for a word and screwing his hand round and round as though uncorking a bottle, like him, him, corkscrew, cried Ahab, aye, Queequeg, the harpoons lie all twisted and wrenched in him. Ay, Degu, his spout is a big one, like a whole shock of wheat, and white as a pile of our Nantucket wool after the great annual sheep shearing. Ay, Tashtego, and he fantails like a split jib in a squall. Death and devils, men, it is Moby Dick ye have seen. Moby Dick, Moby Dick. Captain Ahab, said Starbuck, who, with stub and flask, had thus far been eyeing his superior with increasing surprise, but at last seemed struck with a thought which somewhat explained all the wonder. Captain Ahab, I have heard of Moby Dick, but it was not Moby Dick that took off thy leg? Who told thee that? cried Ahab, then pausing. Aye, Starbuck, aye, my hearties all round. It was Moby Dick that dismasted me. Moby Dick that brought me to this dead stump I stand on now. I, I, he shouted with a terrific, loud animal sob, like that of a heart-stricken moose. I, I, it was that accursed white whale that raised me, made a poor begging lubber of me forever and a day. Then tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, Ay, ay, and I'll chase him round Good Cape Horn, and round the Horn, and round the Norway Maelstrom, and round Perdition's Flames before I give him up. And this is what ye have shipped for, men, 
to chase that white whale on both sides of land and over all sides of earth till he spouts black blood and rolls thin out. What say ye men? Will ye splice hands on it now? I think ye look brave. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and seamen, running closer to the excited old man. A sharp eye for the white whale, a sharp lance for Moby Dick. God bless ye, he seemed to half sob and half shout. God bless ye, men. Steward, go draw the great measure of grog. But what's this long face about, Mr. Starbuck? Wilt thou not chase the white whale? Art not game for Moby Dick? I am game for his crooked jaw, and for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, if it fairly comes in the way of the business we follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest it, Captain Ahab? It will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market. Nantucket market! Hoot! But come closer, Starbuck, thou requirest a little lower layer. If money's to be the measurer man, and the accountants have computed their great counting house the globe by girding it with guineas, one to every three parts of an inch, then let me tell thee that my vengeance will fetch a premium here. He smites his chest, whispered Stubb. What's that for? Methinks it rings most vast, but hollow. Vengeance on a dumb brute, cried Starbuck, that simply smote thee from blindest instinct? Madness! To be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemous. Hark ye again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there... Some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall, shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis nuff. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate, and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play herein. Jealousy presiding over all creations. But not my master man is even that fair play. Who's o'er me? Truth hath no confines. Take off thine eye. More intolerable than fiends glaring is a doltish stare. So, so, thou reddenest and palest. My heat has melted thee to anger glow. But look ye, Starbuck, what is said in heat that thing unsays itself. There are men from whom warm words are small indignity. I meant not to incense thee. Let it go. Look. See yonder Turkish cheeks of spotted tawn living, breathing pictures painted by the sun. The pagan leopards, the unreckoning and unworshipping things that live and seek 
and give no reasons for the torrid life they feel. The crew, man, the crew, are they not one and all with Ahab in this matter of the whale? See Stubb, he laughs. See yonder Chilean, he snorts to think of it. Stand up amid the general hurricane, thy one-tossed sapling cannot, Starbuck. And what is it? Reckon it. Tis but to help strike a fin, no wondrous feat for Starbuck. What is it more from this one poor hunt, then, the best lance out of all Nantucket? Surely he will not hang back when every foremast hand has clutched a whetstone. Ah, constraining seize thee, I see. The billow lifts thee. Speak, but speak. Aye, aye, thy silence, then, that voice is thee. Something shot from my dilated nostrils. He has inhaled it in his lungs. Starbuck is now mine, cannot oppose me now without rebellion. God keep me, keep us all, murmured Starbuck lowly. But in his joy at the enchanted tacit acquiescence of the mate, Ahab did not hear his foreboding invocation, nor yet the low laugh from the hold nor yet the presaging vibrations of the winds in the cordage, nor yet the hollow flap of the sails against the masts, as for a moment their heart sank in. For again Starbuck's downcast eyes lighted up with the stubbornness of life. The subterranean laugh died away. The winds blew on. The sails filled out. The ship heaved and rolled as before. Ah, ye admonitions and warnings, why stay ye not when ye come? But rather are ye predictions than warnings, ye shadows? Yet not so much predictions from without as verifications of the foregoing things within. For with little external to constrain us, the innermost necessities in our being, these still drive us on. The measure! The measure! cried Ahab, receiving the brimming pewter and turning to the harpooners, he ordered them to produce their weapons. Then ranging them before him near the capstan, with their harpoons in their hands, while his three mates stood at his side with their lances, and the rest of the ship's company formed a circle round the group, he stood for an instant, searchingly eyeing every man of his crew. But those wild eyes met his, as the bloodshot eyes of the prairie wolves meet the eye of their leader, ere he rushes on at their head in the trail of the bison. But alas, only to fall into the hidden snare of the Indian. Drink and pass, he cried, handing the heavy charged flagon to the nearest seaman. The crew alone now drink. Round with it, round! Short draughts, long swallows, men. Tis hot as Satan's hoof. So, so it goes round excellently. It spirals in ye. Forks out at the serpent's snapping eye. Well done, almost drained. That way it went, this way it comes. Hand it to me, here's a hollow. Men, ye seem the years, so brimming life is gulped and gone. Steward, refill. Attend now, my braves, I have mustered ye all round this capstan. And ye mates, flank me with your lances. And ye harpooners, stand there with your irons. And ye, stout mariners, ring me in, that I may in some sort revive a noble custom of my fishermen fathers before me. O men, you will yet see that. Ha! 
Boy, come back. Bad pennies come not sooner. Hand it me. Why, now, this pewter had run brimming again. Wert not thou St. Vitus's imp? Away, thou ague. Advance ye, mates. Cross your lances full before me. Well done. Let me touch the axis. So saying, with extended arm, he grasped the three level radiating lances at their crossed center. While so doing, suddenly and nervously twitched them. Meanwhile, glancing intently from Starbuck to Stub, from Stub to Flask, it seems as though, by some nameless interior volition, he would fain have shocked into them the same fiery emotion accumulated within the laden jar of his own magnetic life. The three mates quailed before his strong, sustained, and mystic aspect. Stub and Flask looked sideways from him. The honest eye of Starbuck fell downright. In vain, cried Ahab, but maybe tis well, for did ye three but once take the full forced shock, then mine own electric thing that had perhaps expired out from me? Perchance, too, it would have dropped ye dead. Perchance ye need it not. Down, lances. And now, ye mates, I do appoint ye three cupbearers to my three pagan kingsmen there, yon three most honorable gentlemen and noblemen, my valiant harpooners. Disdain the task? What, when the great pope washes the feet of beggars, using his tiara for ewer? Oh, my sweet cardinals, your own condensation, that shall bend ye to it. I do not order ye, ye will it. Cut your seizings and draw the poles, ye harpooners. Silently obeying the order, the three harpooners now stood with the detached iron part of their harpoons, some three feet long, held barbs up before him. Stab me not with that keen steel. Cant them, cant them over. Know ye not the goblet end? Turn up the socket. So, so now, ye cupbearers, advance the irons. Take them. Hold them while I fill. Forthwith, slowly going from one officer to the other, he brimmed the harpoon sockets with the fiery waters from the pewter. Now, three to three, ye stand. Commend the murderous chalices. Bestow them, ye who are now made parties to this indissoluble league. Ha, Starbuck, but the deed is done. Yon ratifying sun now waits to sit upon it. Drink, ye harpooners, drink and swear. Ye men that man the deathful whaleboat's bow, death to Moby Dick. God hunt us all if we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death. The long barbed steel goblets were lifted, and to cries and maledictions against the white whale, the spirits were simultaneously quaffed down with a hiss. Starbuck paled and turned and shivered. Once more, and finally, the replenished pewter went the rounds among the frantic crew, when, waving his free hand to them, they all dispersed, and Ahab retired within his cabin. Chapter 37, Sunset, The Cabin by the Stern Windows, Ahab sitting alone and gazing out. I leave a white and turbid wake, pale waters, paler cheeks, where'er I sail. 
The envious billows sidelong swell to whelm my track. Let them, but first I pass. Yonder, by the ever-brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. The gold brow plums the blue. The diver sun, slow-dived from noon, goes down. My soul mounts up. She wearies with her endless hill. Is, then, the crown too heavy that I wear? This iron crown of Lombardy? Yet is it bright with many a gem? I, the wearer, see not its far flashings, but darkly feel that I wear that, that dazzlingly confounds. Tis iron that I know, not gold. Tis split, too, that I feel. The jagged edge galls me so. My brain seems to beat against the solid metal. I, steel skull, mine, the sort that needs no helmet in the most brain-battering fight. Dry heat upon my brow? Oh, time was when as the sunrise nobly spurred me, so the sunset soothed. No more. This lovely light, it lights not me. All the loveliness is anguish to me, since I can ne'er enjoy. Gifted with the high perception, I lack the low, enjoying power. Damned, most subtly and most malignantly. Damned in the midst of paradise. Good night, good night. Waving his hand, he moves from the window. Twas not so hard a task. I thought to find one stubborn at the least. But my one cogged circle fits into all their various wheels, and they revolve. Or... If you will, like so many anthills of powder, they all stand before me, and I their match. Oh, hard, that to fire others, the match itself must needs be wasting. What I've dared, I've willed, and what I've willed, I'll do. They think me mad, Starbuck does, but I'm demonic. I am madness maddened. That wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy that I should be dismembered. And I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now, then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more than ye, ye great gods ever were. I laugh and hoot it ye, ye cricket players, ye pugilists. Ye deaf burks and blinded bendigos, I will not say as schoolboys do to bullies, take some one of your own size, don't pommel me. No, ye've knocked me down, and I am up again, but ye have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags, I have no long gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab's compliments to ye, come and see if ye can swerve me. Swerve me? Ye cannot swerve me, else ye swerve yourselves, man has ye there. Swerve me, the path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run, over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains, under torrents' beds, unerringly I rush, knots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. Chapter 38, Dusk, by the mainmast, Starbuck leaning against it.
My soul is more than matched. She's overmanned and by a madman. Insufferable sting that sanity should ground arms on such a field. But he drilled deep down and blasted all my reason out of me. I think I see his impious end, but feel that I must help him to it. Will I? Nil I. The ineffable thing has tied me to him, toes me with a cable I have no knife to cut. Horrible old man. Who's over him, he cries. I. He would be a Democrat to all above. Look how he lords it over all below. Oh, I plainly see my miserable office to obey, rebelling, and worse yet, to hate with a touch of pity. For his eyes I read some lurid woe would shrivel me up had I it. Yet there is hope. Time and tide flow wide. The hated whale has the round watery world to swim in as the small goldfish has its glassy globe. His heaven insulting purpose God may wedge aside. I would apart were it not like lead. But my whole clock's run down. My heart the all-controlling weight. I have no key to lift again. A burst of revelry from the forecastle. O God, to sail with such a heathen crew that have small touch of human mothers in them, whelped somewhere by the sharkest sea. The white whale is their demigorgon. Hark the infernal orgies. That revelry is forward. Mark the unfaltering silence aft. Methinks it pictures life. Foremost through the sparkling sea shoots on the gay embattled battering bow, but only to drag dark Ahab after it, where he broods within his sternward cabin, builded over the dead water of the wake, and further on, hunted by its wolfish gurglings. The long howl thrills me through. Peace, ye revelers, and set the watch. O life, tis in an hour like this, with soul beat down and held to knowledge, as wild, untutored things are forced to feed. O life, tis not that I do feel the latent horror in thee, but tis not me that horrors out of me, and with the soft feeling of the human in me, yet will I try to fight ye, ye grim phantom futures. Stand by me, hold me, bind me, O ye blessed influences. Chapter 39, First Night Watch, Foretop, Stub, Solace, and Mending a Brace. Ha 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 ha, clear my throat. I've been thinking it over ever since, and that ha, ha's the final consequence. Why so? Because a laugh's the wisest, easiest answer to all that's queer. And come what will, one comfort's always left. And that unfailing comfort is, it's all predestinated. I heard not all his talk with Starbuck, but to my poor eye, Starbuck then looked something as I the other evening felt. Be sure the old mogul has fixed him too. I twigged it, knew it. Had I the gift, might readily have prophesied it, for when I clapped my eye upon his skull, I saw it. Well, Stubb, wise Stubb, that's my title. Well, Stubb, what of it, Stubb? Here's a carcass. I know not all that may be coming, but be it what will, I'll go to it laughing. 
Such a waggish leering as lurks in all your horribles. I feel funny. Fa, la, la, ra, scurra. What's my juicy little pear at home doing now? Crying its eyes out? Giving a party to the last arrived harpooners? I dare say, gay as a frigate's pennant, and so am I. Fa, la, la, ra, scurra. Oh, we'll drink tonight with hearts as light to love as gay and fleeting as bubbles that swim on the beaker's brim and break on the lips while meeting. A brave stave that. Who calls? Mr. Starbuck? Aye, aye, sir. He's my superior. He has his too, if I'm not mistaken. Aye, aye, sir. Just through with this job. Coming. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time as the adventures of the Pequod and its crew continue.